Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with Phil Dave, Kate Fulton and Tony Honigberg. Coming up, we'll be marking 100 years since the end of World War One by speaking to Jacques Weiser and Danny Yank from Ajax, that is of course the Association of Jewish Ex-Servicemen and Women, about this year's parade, which of course takes place one week later on the 18th of November. We will also be hearing about a new concert called Armistice, which is to commemorate the centenary of World War One finishing. That is with one Dr. Benjamin Wolfe, who has composed it. And we'll be hearing about this year's Jewish Volunteering Network Awards Ceremony for 2018, courtesy of Mike Silverstone. And as if all of that isn't enough, we'll be finding out about the fascinating initiative known as Here to Learn. But before all of that, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week, here's Vivian Krieger. And we begin with the Mayor of London's keynote address at the Board of Deputies dinner when he said it pained him to the core that many Jews no longer feel welcome in Labour. Sadiq Khan expressed solidarity with the community and with MPs facing abuse. Mr Khan paid another tribute to the victims who died in the Tree of Life shooting in America and also said he was a Muslim mayor standing shoulder to shoulder with the Jewish community here. The Board of Deputies' own panel has criticised the unprecedented six-year suspension it imposed on a Finchley United synagogue representative who was accused of making Islamophobic and anti-Arab comments. It was claimed Roslyn Pine had shared tweets describing Muslims as the vilest of animals. The revelation follows the leak of internal documents seen by the Jewish News. The panel reserved its greatest criticism for the way the Board's executive suspended Ms Pine with no meeting or collective discussion. Synagogues and families across the country will mark 80 years since Kristallnacht by leaving lights on over Shabbat. The idea came from a campaign led by the United Synagogue to mark the extreme violence of one night in 1938 when 250 shuls were set alight and 7,500 businesses across Germany and Austria were destroyed by the Nazis. An estimated 100 Jews died. Gabby Glassman, who's chair of the Yom HaShoah Committee at Pinner Synagogue, said Nazi behaviour defied international standards, but as the response was minimal, they learned they could act with impunity. A 37-year-old Palestinian woman was shot and wounded after she attempted to stab a border policeman in the West Bank. The woman, who came from the nearby village of Yatta, pulled out a pair of scissors and tried to injure the policeman who was performing a security check at a petrol station. A knife was also found on her. It's been revealed that the Royal Mint decided not to mark the centenary in 2014 of Roald Dahl's birth with a special coin because of his anti-Semitism. Dahl, who died in 1990 at the age of 74, is beloved by many children and adults because of books such as Matilda and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. In 1983, he told the New Statesman, there is a trait in the Jewish character that does provoke animosity and... Even Hitler didn't pick on them for no reason. The Board of Deputies commented, he may have been a great children's writer, but he was also a racist. Thank you, Viv. First on the Jewish Views this week, Justin Cohen, news editor, is joining us to review your copy of the Jewish News for this week. On the front page is a large picture of broken glass. That's right. We've got a, a giant picture of, of shattered glass to mark the 80th anniversary of Kristallnacht, which, of course, was the, the night of broken glass when synagogues were attacked and burnt and really marked the start of what was to become the Holocaust. It was a moment when a lot of 
Jewish people realised that there was no way out of this situation and it actually led to really the Kinder Transport Operation, whose anniversary we'll mark again in, in a couple of weeks' time. We've got a special editorial this week which is flagged on the front page and really talks about the need to the continuing relevance of the message of Kristallnacht and of the Holocaust that what happened, what ended in the Holocaust, began with lower-level violence and with acts of legislation and the need to remain vigilant today to all forms of racism, anti-Semitism and other forms of hate. How are you marking Kristallnacht throughout the paper? We've got articles by various high-profile figures. We've got a piece by the Archbishop of Canterbury talking about the importance, continuing importance of free speech, but responsible free speech, also a piece by the German ambassador to the UK. And we've done an interview at length with uh, Isaac Herzog, whose father, of course, experienced this and went on to talk at the United Nations in one of the most famous speeches ever about the Holocaust. So those, those are various ways that we're marking it this week. And there are other remembrances, other things that we're remembering this week. And it's 100 years since the First World War. How are you remembering that? So it's a big week, as you say, of big anniversaries. And this weekend marks 100 years since the end of the First World War, the Great War. We've got a fascinating piece of content on page 14 and 15 about the contribution that JFS pupils made to the war. We've got images of some of the pupils that enlisted at very young ages, as young as 13 in some cases, to fight in the First World War. I think a total of 1,230 JFS pupils were known to have enlisted in the Allied forces, of whom 240 lost their lives in the conflict. We've got here uh, in, in the newspaper this week a copy of the JFS school magazine from uh, 1915 and also a roll of honour of some of the names of those that were killed. But I just I think it's worth reading the opening paragraph from that JFS school magazine in March 1915. Fascinating. It says that we admire the pluck and patriotic spirit of Joseph Rosenbaum, who enlisted in Kitchener's army in November last, being 13 and a half years old at the time. But we cannot condone the acts that accompanied his step. He knew he was legally obliged to be attending school. He made the false declaration that he was 19 years of age and he joined another regiment when he discovered that his father was summoned by the attendance officer two-month search has failed to discover him. You can see uh, the, these young people who were supposed to be in school at the time were signing up. And I think a lot of the pupils that signed up actually were, were immigrants to this country and felt a deep affiliation to the country. And I think that's also an important message for, for today. It is. I, extraordinary. I'm still sort of reeling from that. I don't even understand how a 13-year-old could be mistaken for a 19-year-old, actually. But that's, a, that's another story. But these, it was the beard these... that gave it away. These kids are quite, as you say, incredibly patriotic at such a young age. And we will be hearing from some Ajax personnel later on in the programme. There's been a dinner, the Board of Deputies dinner. What was special about that one? The guest of honour at the dinner was Sadiq Khan this year. It comes in a week where he was doing quite a lot with the Jewish community. He attended the vigil for Pittsburgh. He also went to synagogue at the West London Synagogue at the weekend in solidarity with the victims of Pittsburgh. But this speech at the Board of Deputies dinner, I think, will be remembered in particular for his remarkable solidarity and support for the community over Labour anti-Semitism. Remember, he is, after all, a Labour politician. He expressed his support for his fellow, former fellow parliamentary colleagues 
who have faced abuse in the Labour anti-Semitism scandal, people like Luciana Berger, Ian Austin, he, he named them all and got a huge ovation for that. He also said that the party needs, the party's leadership needs to make concerted efforts to rebuild the relationship with the Jewish community. And I think his message hopefully will be uh, adhered to. We're not, we're not seeing much sign of that at the moment. In fact, there's a complete impasse in relations between the community and the party. But there were some important words, uh, an important recognition of where the reality lies at the moment in relations between the majority of the Jewish community and the party, which, as, as Sadiq Khan said, used to be the natural home for many Jewish people. Yes, well, work continues in, in that direction. Now, let's have a look at the Simcha show. Something a bit jolly and bright. I think I've been to one myself. They're very lively events. Tell us what's going on this year. Something of a change of pace, really, among all these serious uh, anniversaries that the country is marking. Every year we hold a Simcha show, a bar and bar mitzvah show uh, specifically. And everyone's going to be gathering this weekend on Sunday through most of the day at the Village Hotel in Elstree for what is really a one-stop shop for everything you could want if you're arranging a big party coming up. So we've got entertainers and invitation people and all sorts of accessory people, photographers, videographers, they'll all be there. So if you've got a party coming up, there's only one place to be, and that's the Village Hotel in Elstree. Well, I do weekend. remember it being wonderful. You could get the, there was lots of little tasty bits being offered mm. by the caterers around the place and um, a little bit of a l'chaim here and there. I honestly, you feel like you've been to a kiddish or a simcha by the end of it anyway. Yeah, it I, is its own simcha, would you say? Uh, it is in a way. It's celebrating um, celebrations. I, I wouldn't to be necessarily celebrated. suggest that people come to, just to get drunk. No, uh, I d- but, didn't um, think Kate, that. Kate, were you shicker by the end of it? <laughs> I was absolutely not. To get not. drunk and fresh all <laughs> It's definitely a bonus, though, of being there. If you, if They're you very small tidbits, though. I don't want to sort of oversell that. No, no, no. no. There's, there is a bit of food, though, a bit of, a bit of drink. Get through you through the afternoon. Absolutely. You, the clowns. Yes. I remember seeing an ice sculpture. I mean, you know, They've what more could you want on a Sunday afternoon? Ali G impersonator we once had, but I don't think he's there this year. But A lot of music, a lot of bands. Bands, music, there'll be a fashion show at 12.45 by Elsa. Are uh, you modelling for us? Or I'm it? not. You're no, not? Not on this occasion. I haven't been asked. <laughs> Very offended. It was an oversight, clearly. But, uh, <laughs> oh, well, look forward to I that. Phil, uh, Phil is, though. So I, I, I told you not to tell anyone about that. <laughs> <laughs> and how do we get tickets for it? Um, it's free. Just oh, come along. Even better. Yeah. Great. Well, that's where we'll have to leave it for this week. But thank you, Justin Cohen, news editor of the Jewish News. And don't forget, you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, this coming 11th of November marks an incredible 100 years since the end of World War I. Many don't realise the Jewish efforts that was made during that time. As for so many, the association of Jews in the UK is only really considered after World War II, which of course just is not true. To tell us about the efforts that our community made, we can now speak to Jacques Weiser and Danny Yank, who are both from Ajax, or of course, the Association of Jewish Ex-Servicemen and Women. Gentlemen, thank you very much indeed for speaking to us on The Jewish Views. It's very much appreciated. I suppose we should start off with you, Jacques. Tell us, just to remind us, a little bit about the purpose behind Ajax and where it all began. Well, Ajax, as an association, began soon after the end of World War I, when 
uh, huge Magin David was later the Senator. It became subsequently an association and an organization laid, made a parade and was, if you like, completed by those who survived and were able to pay their respects at the Senator and has developed since. A parade has taken place every year other than the Second World War since then. And tell us a little bit about the day-to-day work, because obviously if a parade has taken place around Armistice Day ever since then, one would be forgiven for thinking there's not much to do the rest of the year round. Believe me, there's plenty to do because our (laughs) ethos, apart from anything else, is obviously very much into welfare, into remembrance and more and more education. And Danny, as I mentioned in my introduction there, there are some who rather mistakenly think that Jews only have really an association with Britain, say, after World War II and the atrocities that were witnessed there. And of course, that's not true because there is a, a large history between Jews and the military. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about that because you yourself are actually involved in the military, are you not? I am, yeah. So I was a regular officer in the Royal Artillery for the last 14 years. And earlier this year, I came out of regular service and have become a reservist officer. And upon leaving the regulars, I was contacted by Ajax and they asked me if I'd be uh, happy to come on board and sort of help out with what they're doing. So I'm very much, you know, still a military man and that's been my professional career. So I've just kind of sidestepped at the moment and come into the charity world. So this is all fairly, fairly new to me. But just staying briefly on sort of current serving, we're around 200, maybe 250 currently serving Jewish you know, young men and women in the British Armed Forces, and that's across the Army, Air Force, Navy, and Marines. So, you know, we're, we're, we're still there and we're still plugging away, but I don't think many people in the community know that we've got so many serving. Absolutely. And let's put it into some sense of perspective. We're talking a total of about 270,000 Jews for the whole of the UK, and yeah. 1% of that community serves in the armed forces. Yeah, it would be you know, part of what we're trying to do at Ajax is, is, and as Jacques already said, is is what well, we do remembrance, we're doing welfare, but education is a big part for us. And we need to make sure that our communities know that on every single operation that this country has been in, every single engagement, every single war that this country has been in for the last 300 years, there have been British Jews on those battlefields in uh, sea, in the land, on the land environment and in the air. And that still goes on to this day. And, and I'm not convinced that people are really aware of that. And they should be. And the reason why that, that should be the case is, you know, I've had an amazing, fantastic career in the armed forces. And I think this is something that more young Jewish men and women should be looking at and thinking, you know, perhaps British Army, Air Force or Navy is for me. Jacques, can you tell us a little bit about the way that that education side of things actually does work? Do you physically go into schools and educate people? Do you pass on information to schools? How does that actually come together? Well, both of those and more, uh, primarily through those of the association who have survived the Second World War and are still with us, and of course, those who have served since, primarily through the auspices of the Jewish Military Museum, which is now based at the Jewish Museum in Camden, and also by virtue of obviously flyers and educational tools. It will include memorabilia and a lot of other facets that report and return to the United Kingdom since, well, since ever. We've got artifacts that date back several hundred years. 
it's quite a sort of exciting time for Ajax in the sense that we've just taken on a new education officer and she's absolutely brilliant. And her task over the next, well, once this parades out of the way, really, is to sort of go forth into the Jewish community and the non-Jewish community, you know, nationwide, to start taking the message of the the service and the sacrifice of Jews fighting for the British Armed Forces. So that's a really exciting time for us because we've always relied on volunteers to do this in sort of in a piecemeal way. But this is our way of professionalizing that education service across the whole community. Given that it is 100 years, and 100 years a centenary since the First World War is quite some significant milestone, is there anything specifically that you will be doing at Ajax for, by way of remembrance? Well, first of all, our parade this year will be geared virtually in total to Armistice 100 when we lay our wreaths at the Cenotaph on the 18th, and hopefully a lot of the members of our community and others will take the time, which is also on mitzvah day, to make this their mitzvah. In other words, remembrance is a mitzvah. We will ensure that those who laid down their lives so that we should have democracy and that we are able to live the life we are currently living are remembered and are commemorated. Danny, how does it work being someone who's Jewish and being in the military? Are you able to live a Jewish lifestyle whilst serving because i can't help but wonder the two must conflict somehow you can't just suddenly sort of say i'm going to stop being actively on duty say on a friday evening so how does the judaism and the career come together well i think it's a case of you have to be pragmatic and you know you there has to be give and take on both sides you know i've never felt anything but interest and respect for being jewish with everyone pretty much that i've ever met in my 14 years of regular service but part and parcel of that is understanding you know when you can put your hand up and say well, actually I'm Jewish and that's going to be a problem for me and other times you say you know what I've just got to get on with it so if you're away on operations you need to accept the fact that you work seven you know 20 20 odd hours a day seven days a week there is no break for any reason and you cannot expect that but when you're in barracks or if there's high holidays, etc., then the system is very flexible and will respect you. You know, when I joined, there were no such thing as kosher rations. There's now kosher rations, so I don't you know, have to eat uh, vegetarian rations anymore. So, you know, it, it's it's a very respectful environment, and and they're definitely it's very welcoming for Jews. But I think it's you know it, when you're serving about all things, you just need to be quite flexible and pragmatic. And to intercede here. There's also an element that has developed over the recent years, and that is Jewish chaplaincy. We now have several padres in the armed forces. They do a tremendous job. They they go outside the United Kingdom as and when required and look after the boys. And also with the Jewish chaplaincy, it's worthy of note that they don't just represent the Jews that are serving, so that the position of the chaplain or the padre normally in in a regiment is to sort of be the spiritual leader for that regiment. And traditionally, that's, you know, a Christian padre. But our padres are so involved now that they're actually posted to units as a normal padre. So an entire regiment of maybe, say, a thousand men and women, their religious spiritual leader could well be a rabbi now, despite the fact that they probably don't have any Jews within that regiment. So that's a significant advancement for the faith in the armed forces. Well, gentlemen, the Ajax Parade is on Sunday the 18th of November. That's exactly one week 
after Armistice Day is commemorated. And thank you both very much indeed, not just for speaking to us, but frankly for the amazing work that you do and all of Ajax do. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to us on The Jewish Views. You're welcome and thank you. Thank you. And you may also like to know that following the Ajax parade this year on the 18th of November, that there is an educational event that Ajax are hosting for all the family, which will be taking place at number eight Northumberland Avenue. If you would like more information on that, then you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. If you'd like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views. On Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Or you can go to the website jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to the Jewish Views in association with the Jewish News. As you've been hearing, the 11th of November marks 100 years since the end of the Great War, World War I. Many communities are marking this historic landmark up and down the country. And just one example of how the Jewish community will be acknowledging it is with a new concert by Dr. Benjamin Wolfe. It's called Armistice and will be performed by the Zemmel Choir and the Royal Free Music Society in association with the Wallace Ensemble on Sunday the 18th of November at the Hampstead Garden Suburb Free Church. And to tell us more about it, we can now speak to Dr. Benjamin Wolfe. Benjamin, welcome. Thank you. Tell us more about it. The concert is a mixture of different kinds of music. The main focus in the first part is the piece that I've written specially for the concert. And then we have other music that is by composers from the different countries that were involved in the war or composers who were alive at the time of the war. There's also some Jewish elements, but it's a sort of multi-faith interfaith event because the Royal Free Choir is obviously not a Jewish choir. We're performing in a church and obviously a lot of the audience is going to be a mixed audience. The piece itself, the one that I've written, is a combination of World War I songs. So songs which you will recognize if you've been to World War I events, you know, Tipperary, that sort of thing. And not actually, that's one I don't have, Ah. but uh, Roses of Picardy, things like that. And also poems by First World War poets. So some of the more famous figures, but also a number of slightly less well-known World War I poets, and there's a mixture of choral songs and then also solos, which are musical settings of those poems. I know, it'll be of interest to Kate, who's here. What poets have you got? Isaac Rosenberg Rosenberg is in there. Sassoon's got a feature. Well, Sassoon, I was going to feature until I I realised that Sassoon was still in copyright. (laughs) He was Uh going to feature, because obviously he died in the 1960s, I think. I have a Gurney features... Probably, though this is the last little bit I'm doing, there will be that little bit of A.E. Houseman where he wrote the epitaph. And the When You See Millions of the Mouthless Dead is featured. So a number of different, I mean, a lot of different poems. Some of the well-known ones, but also I had to go through to find little sections of poems that work well as songs because obviously you don't always set the whole poem where it becomes a little bit too long for a song. So you have to kind of find snippets of the poem. But if you are what, an aficionado of World War One poetry? It sounds like the wrong word, really, doesn't it? Then you will certainly find that there are words that you recognise. How do you go about composing something like this? What, what, what brought the concept to mind? I was going to write a piece for the two choirs anyway, 
And this was the moment that seemed the best time to write it. Partly, I also was away on sabbatical earlier this year, so that gave me some time. And because it's 100 years since the armistice, it's sort of an obvious subject. It's not a brilliant subject if you want to then perform the piece the following year, but it's a brilliant subject for 2018. And I had always been interested in World War I poetry. And obviously those songs are very familiar. And I liked the idea of trying to kind of combine the two together. There are a number of kind of musical works that exist that sort of do similar things. Like Britain's War Requiem does use Wilfred Owen poems. Michael Tippett did something similar when he kind of used spirituals as choruses in a larger oratorio. So I wanted to sort of experiment with doing something similar to that. How do you, how do you link it all together, though? So linking it all together, hopefully it flows musically. I started with the words and chose the poems, basically read through a lot of World War I poems, which thankfully I have in a nice little volume my aunt bought for me. And so read through lots of poems and tried to work out which songs I would like to include. And then they sort of link musically because sometimes there is something in the text that picks up on something in the poem. So, for example, if you do Roses of Picardy, there's a poem about the magpies of Picardy. And so you can sort of link those together in sort of the nice song with the rather gruesome poem that follows. Otherwise, I tried to tell it as sort of a slightly narrative story. So you have a song that they might have sung and then you have a poem that's sort of a comment by somebody looking back on it. Or there's something about in the poem that's about remembering. And so then that ties you into a song that's a little bit more about remembering. So, so, so there's in, a sort of story. For instance, you'll have the choirs singing the songs and then someone narrating the poetry. No, the poem, poetry what, is all, all to sung. Music. It's all set to music. The choirs will sing, mostly the choirs are singing the well-known songs. So the choruses are from the choir. There are two movements where the choir sings other things, but most of the poems are then sung by solo voices. Are you having any sort of slideshow behind going on Ooh. with the pictures no. of World War One? Maybe we should. Is it too late to do that? It's never too late. Maybe you're right. It's never too late to have a slideshow from World War One. Or there's some an installation. Or an installation. How about that? Yeah. Because there are some amazing pictures from the First World War. I was looking in the paper this week, and someone has actually colorized a lot of the photographs, which must have taken forever to do, and they are just incredible. I think you should have a slideshow going on behind. I think I agree. I just wonder whether I have time to arrange a slideshow <laughs> in the next week and a half. Are well, you looking for a new artistic director well, by any chance? We could need somebody to if you'd like to arrange a slideshow, I will def actually not say no. So I mean I did actually want to do another thing where I bought some photos which have been taken by one of the soldiers in the First World mm. War because there's somebody who's actually who has collated them and you can just order them from him online mm. and I can't even remember his name. And those are also very like interesting photos so yes it's a good idea if i have time if to do it time. i will try and put it in practice well, let's say at least maybe just an installation or something like that are there particular world war one instruments things that, that, that call to mind that era i mean i don't mean just like the bugle for the last post or something but but something like very often you know you imagine certain centuries with a harpsichord or i just just wondered if there was any specific or is it or is there any tempo or something that, that calls to mind that era that's a very good question. And I want to say no, unfortunately. <laughs> so one of the other pieces we're doing is Elgar's Spirit of England. We're doing it with a small ensemble just because he had it for a huge orchestra. A lot of the sort of wider sounds of that period would have been either sort of quite large orchestral choral sounds within the classical world. So sort of big romantic gestures, or they are more kind of 
popular songs of the kind that you know, Roses of Picardy was a popular song. Mm. They did have these sort of salon orchestras at the same time, but there's no there's no like specific instrument from the early mm. 20th century that sort of conjures up the 20th Just century. Just something that people used to keep. Like I often think of a mouth organ that people would have kept in there, maybe in in a pocket of a soldier's mm. uniform or something like that. I don't know. That's just mm. that's, I, I don't, don't play the mouth did, organ actually, actually. But I've no idea whether they had mouth organs in their pockets. And I feel like this is just <laughs> turning into one massive creative. <laughs> creative. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. This is right. I, this was I not from the had, idea that people I were trying to improve your work. I do wish that I'd spoken to you four months ago. That would make life much easier. So, but no. I can't think of any specific instrument. Though the fact that at that period they were you know, the very early days of recordings and things, there's also there were there were sounds in their heads that wouldn't have been the case sort of forty years earlier. Now one would assume this is not the first piece of music that you have composed in any way, but would you say that there was something different about this? Because you know the meaning behind it and the importance and significance, was there more pressure on you to maybe get this one right more than others, would you say? There's always pressure to get it right. I've done, you're right, it's certainly not the first piece of music that I've composed. It's the first one that I've composed that is sort of an extended choral soloist, slightly oratorio type piece. So trying to get it right in terms of getting the words right, definitely. Trying to make sure that you've got the right text in the right places, yes. And trying to make it suitable for the occasion, which hopefully it is. But also worrying that it's not too morose. Is also, there's a danger of... You know, too much sadness in a World War One concert. No more pressure than usual, but definitely specific pressures. How long does the concert last? It should be a couple of hours. There's a first half an interval and then a second half. On that, how do people get to come and see it? You can order tickets online very easily. Just go to either the Zemmel Choir website or the Royal Free website and just follow the links, or you can just come to the church and buy tickets on how the door. How much? I think it's £15, and I should know that. (laughs) That's okay. That'll do for now. Thank you. Benjamin, thank you very much for coming and talking to us. If you would like any more information on any of the stories or indeed the guests featured on this episode of The Jewish Views, then you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views, in association with The Jewish News. Now, everyone likes an award ceremony. And around this time of year, the Jewish Volunteering Network hold theirs. It recognises some of the finest volunteers the community has to offer, and this year was no exception. To tell us more about it, we now have Mike Silverstone, who is the Volunteer Development Manager. Just for anybody who isn't quite sure what the Jewish Volunteering Network actually does, could you tell us a bit about it? Sure. As well as promoting a general culture of volunteering in the community, the Jewish community and beyond, we also help match volunteers to their ideal volunteering opportunity in a whole variety of charities. We take into account what the charity is looking for, the volunteers' interests, skills and availability, and try and find the best match possible, like a shidduch sort of organisation. Yeah, I was about to say, a little bit of a dating service yeah. you got going there for the volunteers and their and people who would like, and the charities that they would like. So a charity will come to you and say, we would like four people who can, I don't know, bake something, carry something. And how can you be sure that the people have got the the right qualities or do they just put themselves forward? Is there a tick box system? Well, some volunteers will search on our website, which holds all 400 odd opportunities that we have live at any one time. And they can put in what they're interested in, what their skills are and what their availability is. And the best matches will come up because the charities have filled out their opportunities with the same boxes to tick. 
And we also offer a one-to-one bespoke matching service for anyone who either has trouble using the website or maybe doesn't know quite where to start with volunteering if they're just getting into it. If someone's listening who's not sure whether they would be a good volunteer, if you could choose a few characteristics that would define a good volunteer, what would you say? I would say a willingness to muck in where needed. The charity world is sometimes a little bit more chaotic than the corporate sector. And we like volunteers to be flexible if they can and to be generally willing to help out. The root of the word volunteering actually comes from the word willingness in the in the Bible. So it really does mean a willingness to get involved and to help people generally. If you were to be cynical and some people say, oh, volunteers is just unpaid help for the charities, they're more than that though, aren't they? I think so. I mean, a volunteer can add a huge amount of value to charities' work and the awards that we've recently held that you mentioned really recognise some of the most valuable volunteers in the community. But there are hundreds more who work day in, day out at charities. Some do a huge amount, sometimes just once a year. But without the volunteers, these charities really wouldn't be able to function. And I don't think I need to tell you how important those charities are to our community. Absolutely. So we mentioned this, uh, the big awards, the awards night, the big red carpet goes out. How are these volunteers chosen? Who puts them forward? How's that, how's that happen each year? So we asked any charity who wanted to, to nominate their volunteers. We had nine different categories. We had our volunteer of the year category, but we also had others, uh, lifetime achievement category, interfaith volunteering, overseas volunteering. So we had nine different categories. of. And those. it has to come from the charity, not the volunteer themselves. No, we didn't accept self-nominations aside from one of our awards, which was an innovation in volunteering award where a project or a charity could nominate themselves for that. But in terms of the individual volunteers who were nominated, they had to be chosen by their charity. And then we had an independent judging panel who would compile a shortlist and then choose the winners. So some volunteers, because they are behind the scenes quite a bit, they don't necessarily get the... They don't get the spotlight by definition. They how, how do you make sure that the charities even sort of bring those people forward if, well, they, if there is no self-nomination? There is no self-nomination, but we tell the charities the sort of things that we're looking for. I mean, all these charities, we're sure, value their volunteers, but as you say, they don't often show it. So this provides an opportunity for to sort of show off to the community, if you like. These are our amazing volunteers. Look at the work they've done. There's one award for a team of volunteers as well, so it doesn't just have to be individuals. I think Kisharon were the winners of the team award this year. Okay. And their team at Charles Hill Library has done amazing work. There's also other events throughout the year, like Volunteers Week, which is at the beginning of June. But we use these awards as a time for the Jewish community to come together sort of a focus. Yeah. Tell us some of the other categories. So you've mentioned the team awards, and what else, what else is there? There was an Innovation Award, as I mentioned, that a project could nominate. There's an Interfaith Award. And what's um, that involved, the Interfaith? So that would be, actually, this year it was given to a non-Jewish person who works at the Barnet Multi-Faith Forum. And the Interfaith Award is given for building bridges between the Jewish community and other faiths. We also have an Overseas and International Volunteering Award. There's an award for volunteer management at a charity, an award for charity leadership, because that's something that we also focus on in collaboration with LEAD at the Jewish Leadership Council. And there was an award for a rising star as well in volunteering. So somebody under the age of 25 who, for their age, has made an exceptional contribution already and hopefully will go on to become one of the charity sector leaders of tomorrow. 
What got me excited was the Innovation Award. What was that all about and who won that? So that would recognise a charity or a project within a charity that has a particularly innovative approach to involving volunteers in their work. This year's winners were Project Impact, which is not a registered charity yet, but it works with a lot of different charities in the community to get young people involved. In particular, it reaches out to the people who don't necessarily get their community involvement through their school. There's a lot of kids from non-Jewish schools getting involved their ages are 13 to 16, so it's post-bar and bat mitzvah age, and it enables them to keep a connection going. They volunteer in their individual communities every week, but every four or five weeks there will be an en masse volunteering event. We just had the launch last Sunday of this mm-hmm. year's academic program in JW3, and there were 100 kids present. It was completely sold out, cooking 100 meals for 100 homeless people. Excellent. And who was judging this year? The judging panel was chaired by Dame Mary Marsh, who has a lot of experience in the voluntary sector. And we also thought it was important to have a chair who was not Jewish on the panel as well, to give an outsider's perspective on the quality of the volunteering that was Wonderful. Well... Wonderful news and wonderful volunteering. Thank you, Mike Silverstone, who's the Volunteer Development Manager at the JVN. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, most of us take for granted how life in the classroom works. You go to school, pay close attention to what the teacher tells you and learn some of the most valuable lessons in life, right? Now, take into consideration what that must be like for a child who is deaf. Well, the JDA, the Jewish Deaf Association, along with a contingent of parents from the North London Hertfordshire area, have launched the HEAR, H-E-A-R, to Learn campaign. It's in a bit to help improve the way teachers can interact with children who are deaf. And to tell us about it, we're joined by Taryn Honigberg. Yes, Taryn is a relative of mine. She's actually my daughter-in-law. Joanna Strasberg and Karen Green. Before we start... I just want to talk about my granddaughter, Liel, which is Terry's daughter. Liel was born partially deaf, and I know that the JDA have been most helpful. So each of you has a child that is deaf, one or two children. So can we go to Joanna first? Tell me about your child. Yes, so my son, Raphael, was born profoundly deaf. He literally couldn't hear anything. And when he was, just before he turned one, he had cochlear implant surgery so that he was able to start hearing, accessing sound. But he obviously hears in a different way to how we hear because it's through, a, through electrical stimulation. And Karen? Yes, so I have my son Tom who has moderate hearing loss. He was diagnosed two years ago. The doctors think that he had moderate hearing loss from birth and he managed to go under the radar and managed to live for five years without being able to hear properly. Did you pick up on any of that while he was younger? Yes, there were many signs. He went to a specialist doctor who, and an audiologist who kept saying that he is failing his hearing tests, but he will outgrow it. I didn't know any difference, mm-hmm. so I just listened to him. He had speech therapy because he couldn't speak properly. He learned how to speak properly from then. And nobody ever said to me that he needs hearing aids up to he f- after the time he failed when he was in year one. He failed a routine hearing test in school. That's amazing it took them so long. Because I know with Liel, when she was born, they knew within hours almost, within or hours. days, yeah, yeah, that she was deaf. When and who came up with the concept of Here to Learn? There's a nice, lovely network of mums 
we all know each other. We all have children with, with hearing loss. And a group of us decided to go to visit a school called Alma in North London, which had been built and had been acoustically treated at the same time when it had been built because they knew that they had a deaf child attending the school. And we wanted to have a look at that school and see what they'd done and what difference it had made. So a small group of us went. We all have children who were starting um, in school who had just started. And we wanted to get an idea of, of the changes that they'd made. And we were blown away by the school and how impressive it was, the difference it had made to the, the deaf child, but also to all the children in the school. The levels there were just incredible. And after we'd spoken to the head at that school, we came back, we had a chat together and we just thought, hold a second, we can do this for our children too. Why shouldn't every deaf child be able to be in a school that is suitable for them? How does Here to Learn actually help the child? We aim to provide acoustic panels to put within inside each classroom. These panels reduce the vibration of sound and also make sure that the voice of the teacher or whoever is speaking is completely clear to everyone. We also are going to put sound field systems in the classrooms, which will make sure that the teacher's voice is equal across the room and she doesn't have to ever raise her voice. Anyone who's sitting at the back of the room will hear her in exactly the same way as the person at the front of the room. Uh, and the children that are deaf that wear hearing aids, the hearing aids are, because the teacher wears a, a lanyard with a microphone around the, the neck, yes. uh, and the hearing aids have some sort of implant in the hearing aid to pick up the microphone, is that right? Not for, not for the sound field. The sound field, it doesn't need to have the implant. So I, had, I started with that with Tom, he has that in his classroom. He started off with the Roger system, which has the implants, with, mm. they're called the shoes, and he couldn't cope with the weight of them and wouldn't wear them. So the sound field, what it does, it, he doesn't have to wear anything on his hearing aids. It makes the voice come from the back of the room, the sides of the room. It works together with the panels to make it equal, and then everyone benefits. So they're just picking up the sound through the hearing aid from bouncing around the sound panels in, in the classroom? Yes, well, this is the whole beauty of what we're trying to do is that that child isn't going to have to wear anything extra on their cochlear implants or their hearing aids. This is going to be something that changes the acoustics of the room generally and the way that the sound is distributed in that room so that that deaf child is able to access their education as opposed to relying on a system that may or may not be comfortable for that child. So in Karen's case, her son was not comfortable with the radio aid system. Mm. The other problem with the radio aid is you're linked to one person, your teacher, and if there's group work, you might be missing out. So what we're trying to do is enable them to access the education from everyone, from, from the rest of the children, from group work, whatever it is that in, you know, in that particular case, because we're treating the whole room and we're allowing sound to be distributed easily. So, so every child, whether they're deaf or not deaf, will benefit from having the system there? Every child and any child with special needs as well, whether they're deaf or not. A key factor to this, what's the cost per classroom to set these things up? So it varies between schools and the shape of the rooms. The panels are roughly £2,000 for each class. And the sound field system is about £1,500 per class. Because I know you've got a child at Sinai. I do. And, and they've already got a, an acoustic room. Yeah, they? they've got two two classrooms. His, the room that he had last year and the room this year. And it's actually benefiting three children with hearing loss now. Joanna, what school is your child at? My son's at Hearts Midridge Primary School. And there have now been three classrooms treated there. My so daughter's to... at Yavna. 
they're in the process of building a whole new school. So hopefully next year we will be doing exactly the same improvements to the classrooms when they're ready. Obviously you're here because you want to raise money so every school can benefit by having more and more, presumably all the classrooms should should have this in, no matter, they shouldn't have special rooms, it should be every classroom in the school, shouldn't it? Well, there's two things I think we're trying to do. One is that we want to have schools that are fully catered for deaf children so that when there's when they're deaf children who come through the system those parents know that there are various schools that those kids can go to and that are suitable for them because one of the problems that we have found that our kids don't quite fit anywhere they don't fit in specialist deaf schools because they speak well Mm. and you know everyone thinks that they're doing fine but on the other hand, they don't really fit in the mainstream system because it's just too noisy with 30 children in the class. And presumably they don't fit in with any other type of special needs. No, exactly. Because it's a completely different different special need, if you like. Yeah, exactly. Do you know where the technology first started, where it came from? No, except there was a study done called the Essex study, which looked at the difference that it makes to a child, to especially to a deaf child, to acoustically treat the room. And the relative cost of treating the room is actually quite small when you think of the difference it's going to make to those children. So that's the Essex study by David Canning, and that's probably where this whole idea started. So ideally, every school in the country, no matter whether it's a Jewish school or not a Jewish school, should actually have classrooms, when they're building the schools, should be built with these classrooms already in, well, every classroom. Well, now now there are spe- they have to reach certain specifications as far as acoustics are concerned. It has to be a 0.6 reverberation time. For a deaf child, it should be 0.4. The schools that we were our children are at are at about 2, which is so much higher than mm-hmm. they should be. But obviously they're old schools. So Another element of what we're doing is hopefully we've asked teachers, parents, anyone who is having experience of using these adaptions to keep a record of how they find our children doing along the way. So hopefully in a few years, we will have this amazing record that we could possibly take to someone like the Department of Education and say, look, see the results that this has had. You never know how far it's going to go. And maybe one day we will be building new schools and automatically putting in these amazing systems. Okay. And finally, how do people get in touch with you and where can they send their donations to? They need to go on the Jewish Deaf Association website. You can click on a button to donate. And if you please quote Here to Learn campaign, the money will go straight to us. And like you mentioned, it's a grassroots initiative. You know, we came up with it and the JDA is really, really amazing and supporting us and totally on board. And they know what an amazing difference this is going to make to every deaf child. And we will put the JDA's website address on our website. Tarion, Joanna and Karen, thank you very much for taking time out and coming to talk to us today. And good luck with everything that you're doing. Thank Thank you. you. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and it comes from Rabbi Harvey Belofsky of Golders Green United Synagogue. In the current Torah reading, we continue the story of the patriarchs and the matriarchs. We're learning now about the twins, Jacob and Esau, Yaakov and Esau, and this conflict right from the beginning, even in their mother's womb. In fact, the text tells us that they fight somehow, presaging what will happen later in their lives. And each of the twins allies with one of the parents. The story tells us that Rivka, their mother, liked Yaakov, but Yitzchok, the father, preferred Esau. Anyway, as they grow up, they begin to develop quite different characteristics. And the rabbis who have understood that Esau's not a good guy struggle to find 
places in the story which suggest exactly what kind of people they are. One place they light on is the way in which Yitzchok is spoken to by his son Esau. Esau is characterized by the rabbis as asking questions that are not entirely truthful. The text says, Kitsayed Befiv. The trap was in his mouth, which might mean that he was a good hunter to produce a nice meal, but also might that he was able to trick his father and his parents with what he said. The rabbis light on a very interesting idea. They say Aesop asked questions that seemed to be very, very religious. And an example was, how do you tithe salt? Now, in ancient times, people would tithe things and give it to the priest. But salt's not something you need to tithe. So why would you ask the question? Perhaps this question means that it's a bit of a focus on the things that are not important in life. You can't eat salt. If you just eat salt on its own, you'll die. It'll make you very sick. Water with salt in it's undrinkable. Salt's a condiment. It's just a flavour something. And that's why you only use it in small quantities and it doesn't require tithing because it's not inherently important. The message is that Aesov has a tendency to focus on the things that are secondary, that aren't important, instead of those things which are actually really important in life. Yaakov, on the other hand, perhaps has a different focus. And this little story in the rabbinic literature explains to us that as we are raising our children, in fact, worrying about our own priorities, we need to focus what's really important and not get caught up in those things which really don't matter. Thank you to Rabbi Harvey Belofsky of God as Green United Synagogue for our thought for the week. And that's it for this episode of The Jewish Views. Thank you very much indeed to all of our guests, to Jacques Weiser, Danny Yank, Dr. Benjamin Wolfe, Mike Silverstone, Taryn Honickberg, Joanna Strasberg and Karen Green. And of course, thank you to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and indeed to all of you at home for listening. You can always listen to this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. From me, Phil Dave. Me, Tony Honigberg. And me, Kate Fulton. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.